What's happening, weirdos? It is a uh, rainy night here in L.A. If you hear... You can probably... Huh? Ambiance. This is... This is why you tune in. Um, anyway, this is Science Mike. Uh, now a friend of mine. The first time he did the podcast, we were just acquaintances. But we've been friends for years. And he wrote an incredible book, which you've heard me reference uh, many times. Um, if you've heard me on other podcasts, I reference it. It's called You Are a Miracle, or You're a Miracle, and a Pain in the Ass. And it's incredible. And it's taught me so much about science and psychology and spirituality, all the good things. And, uh, and Mike illuminates me even more on this. And you'll, you'll get this later. He definitely beats me at science. Hardcore. Hardcore. Less to promote. Uh, I know people are suffering. I hope everybody is happy and healthy and that this finds you well. Um, but there is certainly, if there's an upside, there's certainly less to, to blab about up here, up top. So we'll get to it. I know I, I keep saying we're going to go back and forth um, between episodes uh, re- recorded uh, before the quarantine and then uh, those that have been recorded during the quarantine. Uh, we'll do that. But um, science, I call them science, had a lot of good things to say about um, Corona, uh, COVID-19 as well. Um, so I wanted to air this one in real time and also to promote his book, which is coming out uh, soon. Um, I did actually, this is true, turn Science Mike on. Whenever I say uh, Kachava, I turned him on when I say people don't know how to eat plants. I'm actually sort of referencing Science Mike, who said to me, I want to eat more plants, but I don't know where to start. And I literally was like, I say this every week on the podcast. Kachava is the Pete's pick, is the sponsor of this episode. But as you guys know, I don't uh, pick usual, typical sponsors, just anybody who comes. I pick things that I actually use for real, for real, and love. And Kachava is absolutely one of those products that is carrying me through this uh, in a big way. Because nutrition has so much to do with mood. Nutrition has so much to do with our outlook in life. And currently, uh, very difficult to kind of get a variety of foods in my diet. Uh, we're not going to the store nearly as much, all that sort of stuff. Hard to get greens, hard to get superfoods. Uh, and kachava is everything you need. Literally, it's a meal and a pill in a bag. Uh, all in one place. It's 100% plant-based. It's a superfood. If you haven't put it together, it's a superfood drink mix. What if you thought it was a guy named Kachava who came over and cooked for you? Uh, It's got (laughs) omega-3s. You need omega-3s. I'm not here to tell you why, but give it a goog. From chia seeds and flax seeds, it's got eight superfruits, 17 greens and veggies, gluten-free, soy-free, no artificial sweeteners or preservatives. There's just enough coconut nectar in there, which is a low glycemic sweetener, which means it doesn't uh, spike your blood sugar to be sweet. And there's coconut milk in there that mixes with the water that you make it with or whatever you make it with, but mixes in to make it creamier and chocolatey and delicious. It's got 24 grams. Boom. People are like, where do you get your protein? 24 grams of protein in every serving, nine grams of fiber. And here's the deal, why I turn uh, turn people onto it that uh, are just getting started in eating plants and, and taking nutrition to the next level. It's actually delicious. As I always joke, Val likes it. She doesn't usually like my weird hippie things. This isn't a weird hippie thing. This is a delicious chocolate strawberry, if you put strawberries in it, milkshake, basically, that makes you feel incredible because of the raw cacao, raw macaroot for vitality and energy and that, that honestly, that pip 
that is hard for me to find sometimes these days. Uh, getting that nutrition in me definitely, definitely helps. And keeps you full for hours and 20% off. Boom. Show your support of this always free podcast by ordering some of our friends at Kachava. Boy, I can barely talk. Don't worry, the podcast is better than this. K-A-C-H-A-V-A dot com slash weird. You'll get 20% off and show your support. Not that this is horrible, I'm just saying. I wasn't feeling this foggy. When I talked to old science, I was actually quite lit up. But now, you know, it's 7.15 on a a rainy Tuesday. People are walking around wearing masks. It's like the Wild West. Or like Cobra, like G.I. Joe's Cobra. Good guys didn't wear the masks. No, well, yeah, you get it. You you don't need you don't need this. Listen to this podcast. <laughs> listen to this podcast. That's how I should end every every intro. Hey, listen to this podcast. I did. Get into it. Yeah. Dance game is strong. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for working in the sponsor. Meandies.com slash weird. There it is. There it is. You need your soft pants during a pandemic. Gosh, you do. You sure do. Uh, I, I I almost tweeted today, but I, I don't think it's unique to me. I said, I'm glad that people are joining me in my love of soft pants. Yes. But everybody loves soft pants. That's not like... Reasonable people. Reasonable people. I don't trust you. If, well, actually, the, dap, the, the dapper out there, I have a strange appreciation for the dapper, even though I don't uh, aim to model them in any, any way, shape, or form. I feel that. It's so nice to see you. I love what you're wearing. You're wearing a shark shirt. I yeah, I dressed up just for this. Decided to uh, pretend I was going out in public. And oh, <laughs> I, I brushed my hair and everything. Oh, my God. <laughs> I'm I wanted to look pretty for you, Pete. Those little things. I mean, this is sort of on topic with your book. It's like the way that we condition ourselves, the way that we prime mm. ourselves. I have to say right off the bat that I, I haven't read all, all of your book, which is understandable. I haven't had it that long, but I read the first chapter and you can, you can verify this. Not that you won't believe me. Every podcast that I've been a guest on and every episode of my podcast, almost without exception, I've quoted your book and said that you illuminated me to the idea of priming now, mm-hmm. I probably, it's, you know, the one I'm talking about, right? At the mm-hmm. beginning of the book. Mm-hmm. Because you're here, and I'm always here, I can't get away from myself, but there, there you are. Could you please tell us about priming? Because even if people just get this, I think there's a whole world of change and possibility in seeing how susceptible we are and how out of control we are, which is sort of the point of your book. Welcome back, Science Mike. I love you. <laughs> oh, gosh. So much fun. Uh, priming was actually uh, the genesis of the whole book. Yeah. Uh, was was reviewing that research uh, because it was like, oh, man, like we we really don't control what we do very much. Yeah. And the, the experiment yeah. is really simple. They ask people to come in and do word scrambles. And so if anyone's done refrigerator magnet stuff, you get how this works. You take different words, you get words, and you want to make a sentence out of them. Uh, And so if you have four words, it might be, you know, uh, the boy smells good, right? And if you have those four words, you'd come up with that kind of sentence. And people think that's the experiment, and they get in, and it's dumb. And they're like, this is so easy. What a waste of my time. 
Yeah. I, I, sidebar, because I bet you can relate as a science loving person. And even though I get all this credit for being woo woo, I love science. It gives me like a weird, warm ASMR to think that someone is testing me, but they're tricking me. Like I would love <laughs> to be tested and be like, yeah, but the test is really like how quickly I drink my water. That's what you're really te- like. I would want to like figure it out. Like, what are you really doing? You know what I mean? That sort of snowed in warm feeling where they're like, just read the magazine. And you're like, yeah, but you're seeing how I cross my legs <laughs> and you're monitoring when I shift in my seat, depending on the story, the topic of the story. What is it really? They're double blinding you like crazy all the time in science. Yeah. <laughs> it's very creative. It's for very. For something that gets so much, obviously, rightly credit for being rational and pragmatic, Scientists are, are also deeply abstract and creative, mm-hmm. of course. Mm-hmm. They have to come up with these scenarios to literally trick people who think they're being tricked. Right. Okay, right. keep going. I'm, or talk about that. Whatever you want. I'm happy <laughs> to see you. The, the point is the experiment you think is a word scramble. And really, people are getting different groups of words. And so if the groups of words they've been unscrambling would have a youthful connotation, uh, when they walk back out of the experiment, they measure their walking speed coming in and out. People with young words, they tend to walk the same speed or a little quicker than they did coming in. If you give people words you associate with the elderly, people literally consistently walk out of the experiment more slowly. And to see if there was anything there, they did more experiments like that. Only now with temperament, you got done with your word scramble and you had to try to hand in your results. And the research assistant, who's really an actor and not a research assistant, would uh, be engaged in a conversation. And if you got words that were rude in your word scramble, you're very likely to interrupt and say, wait, I'm done. Whereas if you got words that were compliant or polite, then you would sit and wait as long as 10 minutes for this researcher to continue an obviously boring and unimportant conversation. Yeah, I want that job. I want the job where you have to improvise just like a yarn that goes nowhere. <laughs> well, the funny thing about handing in forms is, is you can do it quickly, but you can do it slowly. When I go to the post office, I love to hand over every letter individually just to really savor the miracle that is the mail <laughs> delivery system. You know, the, the licking of the envelope is one thing. I mean, there's the flavor that you savor, but you got to savor and just try. We got to get you a lab coat. Go as long as you can. Just to drive them crazy. I never thought about that. But think about that person trying to vamp for 10 minutes, knowing this person is waiting and knowing if you don't do it well, you've blown the data. Yeah, it's it's the job I was waiting for, born for. Although, you know, just to have fun with science, I wonder if they're like, well, we can't have them do it too long uh, or we have to have them go to the bathroom before the experiment. Like, I bet Mm -hmm. they factor in things like that like we need to tell them that it's going to take three hours even though it's only going to take 30 minutes we have to tell them that you know what i mean like because there are other factors that would make you walk more quickly out of an experiment than walking in well and i think that actually speaks to a really good point in science something i hear people say a lot because you know i'm a i'm kind of a professional science communicator and um people say all the time why is scientific research so expensive on something simple and it's because the level of thought you have to put through to do any experiment and get good data out of it yeah, yeah. you have to figure all these things out before you hit go yeah i, th- I think that's so fun it's almost stonery like sometimes when i'm stoned <laughs> you watch a movie and you get into that nitpicking place <laughs> 
where your brain is just thinking more abstractly. And you're just like, wait, but how did they know that she would pick up the thing? That You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And you're ruining the movie for yourself and your loved ones. But science, part of it is to go like, well, literally, oh God, I'd, I'd love to be a part of something like this. What are other reasons that someone might leave faster or slower and we need to get those out of the way. Food, bathroom breaks, these, these are the interesting factors. Mm-hmm. But keeping uh, or having some faith that they did do that, the words themselves were proven to be uh, ad- uh, r- uh, reliable predictors whether or not they would walk fast. Yeah, highly reliable. Let's unpack that. I know you love Mr. Rogers. Oh, gosh. I love Mr. Rogers. Mm -hmm. And I'm watching so much Mr. Rogers. Mm -hmm. Um, Lila went from almost no screen time to quite a bit uh, because of the situation that we're Mm -hmm. in. But not not overly. But um, I'm getting so much out of watching Mr. Rogers as well. And it has something to do with priming that I bet you already know, which is he's constantly talking about patients. He, not only that, he models slow movement and he's saying positive things. I'm like, this is priming. Now to put that as a question to you, Science Mike, what do we do with that? Because as, I, you know, I remember when people got all up in arms about video games that have a lot of violence in them. Mm-hmm. I'm a little troubled by this evidence. If I've noticed when I play Grand Theft Auto back in the day, I'd be driving more aggressively. Or if I listen to aggressive music, I drive more aggressively. Athletes have figured this out. They listen to aggressive music. It makes them run and compete more aggressively. I mean, this is a big question, but like, talk about the Mr. Rogers of it, perhaps, but also where, where do we draw a line or, or, or how do we increase our awareness of like, whether keeping censorship out of it, an awareness that if you play a game where you're punching people in the face, you'll probably have a slightly more aggressive day at work if that's how you started your morning. Mm-hmm. I think like we'd start by saying it's also complicated. Yeah. And that's what makes things difficult. Think about how subtle a cue the, the tone of a word is in a word scramble. Um, and so when you look at any situation, the number of priming factors there are so, uh, we'd use the word multivariant that it's almost paralyzing. There's so many factors at play in every situation. One of the things that makes experiments really hard to design is trying to eliminate all these multivariant factors, especially when we talk about psychology. Um, but, um, so when we look at something like video games, I want to be really clear. We have a really mixed picture. Um, we haven't found studies that show playing video games makes you more violent, more likely to punch people or shoot people or express aggression. In fact, many studies have found uh, quite the opposite. The video games can almost be taming. It helps you blow off and steam. It helps you blow off steam, and yeah. it kind of conditions you to sit passively in the response of intense stimulus. Oh, that's very interesting. <laughs> that's very interesting. <laughs> you watch really intense things happen, and you respond by sitting very still, and your body goes, okay, intense things happen. I, I guess I sit still. Oh, and wow. Wow. And anything that makes us feel that sense of aggression you're talking about can increase uh, athletic performance, but also uh, markers of aggression in our interactions with people. And so I think the reason I structured my book the way I did is one, we want to look at how we curate our external world, but two, we want to look how we respond to what happens in our bodies and our brains in response to what happens in the world, because 
if you play Grand Theft Auto and feel aggressive and you've done the emotional work to be able to cope with anger, you're going to resolve that without it leading to repression. Mm. So it's all, there's this complicated dance between understanding the invisible things shaping us in the world and the things happening within us we're not aware of. And balancing those two is, I think, how we start to arrive at like a more satisfying life for ourselves and better relationships with others. That really, this is really why I love the book so much and why I'm so glad you wrote it. This is the science, science Mike sweet spot. It's the data behind, because what I hear you saying, I'm gonna, I'll, t- I'll give you an example because I'd love to hear what you think about it. I, on my birthday, it was my birthday a couple days ago, and I uh, took uh, some things. <laughs> and I, and I, was, I was really um, enjoying the feeling and I had like a very open heart and I saw, mm-hmm. and I was staying away from phones and TVs and screens just in general. I spent the entire day. It was a very small amount of, of whatever. Um, so I was very functional. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was, you know, hanging out with Val and Leela together, playing music and being silly. And it was just exactly what you would want, which was my mm-hmm. heart was open. And I felt, I, I thought of you because I felt like your brain goes from um, vertical lines to a crisscross pattern because I literally felt my brain making all these new connections. Mm -hmm. And for about 24 hours, I just couldn't stop going, well, that is like this. And I I saw it with no effort. You could Mm -hmm. say music is blah, blah, blah. And I'd be like, well, that's a lot like economics. And like, I'd explain how it was. And it was, and it was right. I'm not just saying I I love it. A guy on drugs that thought he was right. I mean, I was sober enough, and Val obviously was sober, to see that what I was saying. Here's why I, I'm telling you the story. I, my heart is so open, and I realized I had this very sort of childlike desire on my birthday to hear my mom say happy birthday. She usually uh-huh. calls me and says happy birthday. It's very sweet. Uh, it goes kind of a goofy place, though. So I, 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 my phone was off. I turned it on. Even that is just sort of like, I don't want any news or any weirdness today. Uh, I call my mom and she's in a full-blown panic. It is not the phone call that I, these are not the droids and this was not the phone call I was looking for. (laughs) I'm telling you, it was a pure nightmare. I called hoping that she would answer happy birthday to you. Just like that. And they'd go, thanks Ron. That's why I called. I love you so much. I'll I'll call you later. Instead, I got like, I'm going to die. Everyone's going to die. This is happening. And just pure paranoia, pure panic. It went really, really bad. I didn't know what to do. She ended up getting mad at me because I I wouldn't like kind of join her in the, but here's why I mention it. I saw, Mike, that my body, my, I felt my heart rate quadruple. I was on the phone. I was holding this, a piece of glass and plastic, and I was in the best place you could be. And instantly my body locked up like rigor mortis. My, my heart started going, blah, 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 blah. and like I was flooded. Talk about not being in control. Mm-hmm. Talk about thinking even like I'm in some sort of superhuman state. I am, I am loving awareness itself. And just a few key stimuli, and my body went into full fight or flight or freeze. Mm-hmm. And my heart rate, and it, it was asking me to literally run away, which is what it wanted me to do. Mm-hmm. Um, what, is, what, is, what is that? How does that relate to your book? I mean, these responses, these stimuli, it seems to be the whole 
point. That's the whole book. So the, <laughs> the, I introduce uh, the, the triune brain model, which is a pretty old model in neuroscience. That's not cutting edge. But it's such a great way of understanding the notion that there's not just one you. There's not just a you sitting there. There's a lot of things in your biology that are making you every moment. And it's amazing. And you had this moment where you were reaching out for social connection and part of your brain was longing for that. And then something else happened. And another (laughs) part of your brain stepped in and was like, hold on, this asshole doesn't know what he's doing. I need to handle this, right? That's right. And so I call the three layers of the brain, which are the brain stem or the reptile brain, the paleomammalian brain or the limbic part of the brain and the neocortex, uh, which is the kind of new human part of the brain. I introduce them as characters. And I say that our brains are basically a person standing on a puppy, standing on a crocodile. And that's a really basic way of understanding our brains. So in that moment, you had had an altered consciousness experience and your puppy and your human were just like, just experiencing the joy of existence, right? The the puppy was wagging his tail. It's this wonderful day. Everything's fine. And the crocodiles just kind of checked out. Yeah. Your brain stem was like, well, we're breathing. Everything's fine. There's no poison. Let's chill out. But you have this highly sensitive state. And then you hear this anxiety. You have a whole system in your body. Um, The flight or flight comes from our amygdala and and our brain stem, our limbic and brain stem. We have a second system called the polyvagal system that is, goes beyond the brain and into the body. And what we know about it is it, it coordinates the freeze and faint response. So really our panic system is flight or fight or freeze or faint. And freeze and faint are even faster than fight or flight. So as your mom began to speak in a way that was anxiety producing, before your brain could process words, your heart and lungs oh. responded immediately jacked up also one of my favorite studies just a, a little sidebar here is the one with the two decks of cards and one gives you money and one takes away money or mm-hmm. you know they're shuffled up and mm-hmm. they figured out that your body knows before your brain knows mm-hmm. i'm fascinated with stuff where your body that's why intuition and going with your gut can be so valuable before i even knew that this was sort of like a and i do want to clarify my mom wasn't just having like a normal, let's talk about it, anxiety. She was having kind of what I would call like an overreaction to what was happening mm-hmm. that was that was leading into panic. I don't, I don't mm-hmm. know why I wanted to clarify that. And I did my best, uh, but my body knew this is irrevocable before my mind did. Your so, crocodile went, we're in danger. Ah, bared the teeth like a crocodile yeah. does. And then yeah. the puppy who's kind of sympathetic goes, well, I guess I should growl too. And so then right. go, go your good vibes. And the slowest neurons in your brain are in the person part of the brain, the neocortex. So they kind of finally set down the newspaper and go, what's going on down there? Wow. But by then it's like too late. Your body is already spiraling in anxiety land. And your human brain might be able to calm things down. But it's going to take. I mean, I've, once the, that response R- happens, you've got minutes of anxiety you're going to feel. Richard, uh, Richie Rohr, our homeboy, I, I heard him talking about this and he was like, once all of that stuff is activated, uh, whatever he was quoting, I hope this is right. He said four hours to get back to completely normal. That was, yeah, I'd agree with that. It might have been uh, unrelated. I seem to remember him saying, because I held on to the number four hours. When I've had those lockup things, I'm like, just remember, let's say you get a text that really 
sets you off. If you can manage to wait four hours, you'll actually be replying from the human, not the mm-hmm. crocodile. Mm-hmm. And I've written too many crocodile texts. That's why, and that's what I love about your book is you're saying you're, you're presenting this data not because it's fun, but because you were suffering. Mm-hmm. And I find that fascinating. Mm-hmm. It also is very spiritual that suffering is the great motivator to, to enlightenment, to like mm-hmm. becoming a more conscious person. Mm-hmm. But there you are. You, you mentioned a couple. One was that you were 300 pounds. And for somebody uh, your height, that's, that's pretty substantial. And that your method was to look at science. Talk about your method. So what I've always done uh, as an adult to try to like improve myself, I realize there's something that's not working is I just go read a bunch of papers. Like I, step one for me is like literally papers. And then after I've read what I think is the original research, then I'll go read like the analysis of that research, the kind of things people sell in bookstores. And then I'll create like a plan that involves some process and some measurement to change myself. And I use that process to go through tremendous life change, mm-hmm. um, you know, starting in my early twenties. Um, and then, uh, things got pretty rough again. I, I, I know it's like on these cycles of improvement and collapse and cycles of improvement and collapse. So 300 pounds, run a marathon, 200 pounds, feeling better, start touring for a living. The weight starts creeping back up mm. and I became aware that I kept treating um, symptoms. And the way I became aware that like treating my weight as a health condition and a physical health condition, not a mental health condition, was that um, as I kept treating different symptoms, new things would pop up. And they were all related to the same thing. That's what P. Rollins says, is he says your drinking problem isn't the problem, it's the symptom of the problem. That's right. And he yeah. goes, you should be grateful that you know you have a drinking problem because now you can work with it. Like, like you're getting the message that something is, is wrong. Yes. And when I, I realized my, my data driven approach to transformation was insufficient when on my way to therapy, where I was trying to deal with crippling anxiety attacks that were happening like on stage and before podcast recordings, Mm. uh, I'm a, not a good driver. Um, we've actually found out I've been diagnosed with narcolepsy. So it explains the bad driver thing. <laughs> but what do you mean? You were falling asleep. I fall asleep for, for a micro sleep, uh, three to five seconds at a time. Oh so my what, God. Ha- what I experience while I drive, things just teleport. And I go, when did that happen? Oh, wow. So, and it's worse when I, uh, am stressed. So I feel I'm like you panic. should not be driving. Is right. That? I uh, well, I'm actually not supposed to drive more than 20 minutes now. Oh, wow. Um, but so I, I was on Wilshire on my, my therapist's office trying to turn left and like kind of faux turn, but wasn't sure if I could make it. And so this guy honks at me rightly mm-hmm. because I'd done something stupid, but I went, I'm a stupid failure, had a total panic attack, got out of my car on Wilshire. My car is like catty corner covering the two center lanes of Wilshire Boulevard. In Beverly Hills. Oh my God. I get out of my car and run away and hide behind some cars in a total panic attack. Not really, not a lot of conscious awareness happening here. Very animal state. So the guy who had honked at me gets out of his car and walks over to me. And at this point, a lot of people have gotten out of their cars and walked over and they see me. I'm just crouched on the ground 
kind of in a ball. And the guy you could tell was he had road rage when he was approaching. And when he saw me, this like rage just shifted to empathy. Wow. And he said, Hey man, are you okay? Can we help you? And I was just like shaking. So all these strangers, like very gently helped me back to my car Whoa! and help me get back in. And are you okay? Do we need to move your car for you? Everybody like waited. They all stopped the traffic to let me cross and get to a cross street where I could park and then just like started sobbing. Whoa. And, um, that's when I realized it was something truly more fundamental at play yes. than nutrition or, um, you know, a data driven fitness model where I count my steps. There's, there was something else happening. And that thing was, I didn't know that I had complex post-traumatic stress disorder and that, um, traumatic events in my past were acting as a continuous backseat driver in my life without me knowing it. Wow. And, um, how did you find that out? Well, we have a mutual friend named Dr. Hillier McBride. Yeah. And, um, she's a good friend and you know, how open hearted Hillary is and how kind and empathetic. I should have called um, her. <laughs> <laughs> right. Like, no, no kidding. I'd go, can you just sing happy birthday to me? I just need a, a lady's voice. She would have done it extremely yes. well. Of course she would have. And uh, she told me we were doing a men's retreat together, us and Gungies. Mm. And, um, and I had a panic attack during that, during a sculpt. Like, where I, I lost the ability to see. Uh, my, my vision went black and she you know hillary's my friend she's not my therapist she's not going to diagnose anything but she said mike if i gave you a number for someone to call would you go see them wow. <laughs> and i said i guess i don't think i really need to see anybody but i got this under control <laughs> she just gives you the number it's just the mattress king this doesn't right. call me. Like, i thought maybe you wanted a new mattress i don't know so <laughs> she sends me to a trauma therapist someone that she had studied under Name's Ron Frederick, and I started uh, doing trauma therapy, which is different than like talking therapy. And how was it different? I'm, I'm um, they don't really let you talk a lot. So in normal talking therapy, which I'm like awesome at, because you like tell a story and you cry, and the therapist is like, "You told a story. We came to an insight. I did a good job. I'm a good therapist." And you're like, "I'm a good client. Yeah. Everybody's happy." Yeah. In trauma therapy, I would like start telling a story, and Ron would go, "Wait." What do you feel? And I would say, I feel like when I was a kid and he'd go, well, anytime you say, I feel like that's a thought and I don't want to hear thoughts. I want to hear feelings. What emotion do you feel right now? I would go, I don't know what emotion I feel right now. What are you talking about? Wow. And he goes, what do you feel in your body and where? And I'm like, this is very expensive. Can we finish the story? And he's like, nope. What I need you to do is tell me what you feel in your body. And I would describe it and I'd say, I don't feel anything. I feel numb. He'd go, okay, just sit and wait. I'm like, I'm not going to sit and wait at this hourly rate. Mm. This is, but it took several sessions for him to de-escalate <laughs> me enough to get me to like stop and listen. And then what I found yeah. is um, there was lots happening in my body as I talked that I always ignore. Yeah. And so I would experience feelings and I wouldn't know the name for them. Yeah. I didn't know how to name what emotions was. So he would help me learn to identify what Dude. feelings and it's yes. so intense. Wow. I think the reason I'm glad I asked because I think I want to do that. Mm -hmm. I, I have very low 
body intelligence. So you mentioned Gungi's. He's he made a, an incredible album, and me and Val mm-hmm. and some friends went to his house and danced to the whole album, and it was awesome. And I'm not really, I wasn't raised really to be comfortable with that. I don't mean by my parents. I just mean my school, my community, whatever. Right. For some reason, I was like, right. dancing is for ladies. I don't know how. I went to the most liberal school, uh, really. So it wasn't their failure. I don't know how it happened. And afterwards, I said to Val, I was like, I had no idea that one of the elements that makes dance enjoyable is that it feels good. Like that mm-hmm. you, like that never even occurred to me. At a wedding, you're, I'm just like, I'll do this for uh, eight bars because that seems to be okay. Like I'm looking at other people and it never even occurred to me to move at your hips because there's a stretch in it. There's like, it releases this tension. It's like giving yourself a moving massage, but I had no sensors and Mm -hmm. I, I, I want to join you. I feel like I'm an emotionally intelligent person and I don't necessarily do very well at, emo- at identifying my own emotions. I just want to mm-hmm. join you in that. So mm-hmm. like this, tr- this trip that I had on my birthday, the first thing that I noticed was I was in my body. I felt like a lead chess piece and I was just so heavy and rooted to the ground because I was actually in my body and it felt so good to be aware of my body and to be aware of my feelings. And I was like, that is the lesson. I need to yank that into my daily life. I used to have a joke. I was like, I only ever feel uh, happy or tired. And I'm like, Pete, in your 20s and 30s, I'd like to go back and say, Pete, the only emotions you felt safe feeling were hungry and tired Mm -hmm. or happy and tired. And Mm -hmm. now you need to go like, I'm angry or I'm afraid or it's, it's fucking Mr. Rogers shit, dude. It's all he's doing and I'm benefiting. So trauma therapy, that sounds wonderful. I'm so glad you did that. It's funny. You mentioned like your parents weren't what made you not dance. It's also true for me. It's our culture. It's white dude culture. Yeah. I, I did a few original illustrations for the book that this is bad radio, but I want to show you. I drew a picture of me dancing. <laughs> it's a stick figure it's just a stick figure of a guy not <laughs> dancing because I, I would i you and i both know michael and i would get so jealous watching him yeah. move his body and yeah. i'm like how i i literally don't understand yeah. the process you're going through and uh trauma therapy is helping now i can move uh awkwardly and slowly but i can move yeah. Yeah, I mean, Val is a wonderful partner in this way, too, that we'll have dance. We have dance parties all the time. And I always danced. I just never, it was a real epiphany to be like, wait, you put your arms above you and you move them not to look good or not because the song sounds like a hands up song, but because your body, it's like, she, Val said to me, she was like, because she's a big dancer. She's like, it's your body's time. Let your Mm -hmm. body decide. And this is sort of what you're talking about. There's Pete, which is the predominant consciousness in my brain. And Pete thinks, I I used to think Pete was the big show. And Pete is like telling the body how to dance. Hey, Pete, shut the fuck up. (laughs) Let the body tell Pete how to dance. You can just watch, you stupid bitch. You're always ruining everything. I've, I've made this point about sex too. He's always kind of like, looking at sex as like a maximiz- maximization, maxa, you got what I'm trying to say. I do. Of, of like, 
positions and visual and physical stimuli that might be the most exciting to him. How about listening to your body and your partner's body and getting him the fuck out of the way? He's, he doesn't help in the museum. He doesn't help in the bedroom. He doesn't help on the dance floor. He doesn't help at the concert. I would go to concerts and think about them. That's a good song to open with because it's a high energy song. Shut the fuck up. You're in the way, right? So with you. I, I didn't think, I hate I didn't think of this till after the book to summarize the idea. But that part of us, the like cerebral thinking conscious part of us, all that tissue in your body would fit in a shot glass. <laughs> You know what I mean? And we're like putting our entire experience yeah. in like li- like half a shot glass worth of tissue, mostly neural. Wow. And I thought the same thing. Like my body is a remote operated vehicle for my brain. And what I learned in the process of writing this book is brains are something bodies evolved to solve problems for them. Like wow. the body is the original intelligence. Brains wow. are just a Johnny come lately addition. Oh, Mike, I'm so glad. What an epiphany. That is so powerful for me to hear. The brain was developed by the body to help the body. The body is the original. It's Yes, you just said it. I don't know why I'm saying it again. <laughs> Sometimes things are so good, you just want to say it. I just want to say it again. Oh, I, mean, I went back and looked at evolutionary history, and it's like we're, we have multi-celled organisms just because cells with uh dna and nucleus got tired of getting their ass kicked by bacteria so they literally banded together to try to survive and then they got they had to figure out you had to coordinate actions across multiple cells now so we like started with kind of sponges being able to send signals with calcium spray and sneeze and then jellyfish get nerves and for the first time a, a multicellular organism can feel and coordinate and move and then you, you see this evolution towards um, bilateral symmetry in insects, early insects, arthropods technically on the seafloor. Uh, and then you get ganglia for the first time, lumps of nerves that start to centralize. And you still don't have anything like a brain. But before brains, you have seeking out food, you have sex, you have social congregation, you have all these things before mm. a proper brain shows up in the animal kingdom. Then finally, Finally, life has been going on for maybe 750 million years or a little over a billion years, and an organism goes, let's try a brain. And it was just a new survival strategy that like kind of worked, and so brains got more and more and more complicated, and yet let's... most life on this planet still doesn't have a brain and does just fine <laughs> and is not unintelligent. Is it, wouldn't it be the majority of the life forms on the planet i mean certainly by species yeah certainly by numbers of individuals if you count bacteria it's not yeah. close by biomass say, i'm yeah. not sure biomass human civilization really tilted the biomass scale pretty hard towards brains That's not just because of us but because we we've got a billion cows on the planet there's a ton of mass with a billion cows right of course I'm, I'm I'm thinking of that deep ocean. Whenever I watch something about the deep ocean, and they're just like, there are more species down here than there mm-hmm. are 
Like they're like in one cubic mile, there's more species than there are in the rest of the world. Mm-hmm. I'm just like, as Kumail said, uh, the ocean is truly God's basement. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't heard that, but that's wonderful. Can I put this to you? Uh, this is not necessarily on the topic of your book, but I'm always looking for ways to um, identify and talk about the thing that we call God. The, Can the I rest- pause you there real quick? Yeah. I love talking about the book. I'm just so happy to see you, Pete. Yeah, I know. This is we great. can talk about anything. I appreciate that very much. Thank you for that green light. Um, I was on a walk with baby Lee the other day, and I was looking at bees. She's so great. By the way, when people say that you see the world through a baby's eyes, I would say that the renewing of your vision and how you perceive reality is the goal of every major religion, as Richie would say, at its deeper levels. Mm -hmm. So if a baby helps everybody see through young eyes and stop at a bush and observe the impossibly hovering perfection of, of these bees... Uh, then yeah, that's that's a revelation, and that is rapture in a small dose on a walk with my baby. Mm-hmm. So she stops me at a bush, and I'm looking at the at the bees, and then I'm like, I wrote it down, but I, I don't know if it's right, and it's science related. But I was like, that to me is a hint at what we call God. God being the original consciousness that became all of these things, that became other things. That's sort of the impetus behind things like let's try a brain, like that that original amness, right? So I'm looking at bees and they're pollinate they're eating the flowers or they're getting the nectar from the flowers, but they're also getting pollen on their cute little bee bottoms. Mm-hmm. And then they're going around and they're making more flowers. And then I was like, that is what I'm talking about. The consciousness of a flower, I really don't know. I'm asking you, and I know it's not necessarily your field, but how the fuck does a flower, you could say it doesn't know, it's just like millions and billions of different experiments until one work. But somewhere in that, in those experiments, there seems to be a, an intelligence to me, even if it is just a mosaic of chaos that filters into a final result, that goes, we flowers want to be, we want to be, Mm-hmm. want to be fruitful and multiply. Mm-hmm. Uh, it helps if we get our pollen. Let's have something called, let's try pollen. Let's get pollen on mm-hmm. these bees. They'll go pollinate. In the same way that fruit uh, falls from a tree, it's a delicious treat. A monkey eats it, throws the pit away. It's, it's, it's multiplying. Mm-hmm. The tree, if we were high, this would be so fun. The tree wants to be. Yes. Motherfucker, can we can we stop taking that as a foregone conclusion and and we don't even have to bring God into it, just trip out on the idea that nature wants to and has a drive to continue being. And that, if you could reduce that drive, is sort of what I think of as the verb of God, the verb of being. Mm-hmm. What do you make of that? Well, you know that I am a science-minded person, that if I had any epistemology that I would kind of consider my go-to, it would be empiricism. Um, I tend to epistemologically share more in common with atheists than the other group. And yet I'm like a mystic. I have deeply held spiritual beliefs about God and about love. And part of that is because anywhere we see life, we see the universe experience yearning. I was like, I'm sure he knows exactly what I'm talking about. I'm talking about 
Yearning. Yearning. Yeah. Yearning. Bacteria yearn, but in a very real way, not in a woo way at all. Let us be clear. Plants have nerves. Mm. Let us be clear. Plants communicate with each other and with animals. The plants know which way the sun is shining. They know how much moisture there is in the air, the pH of the soil, where the nutrients are. Plants can move. They do so slowly. But if you watch in time lapse, plants reach for the sun underground. They reach for sources of nutrition and water with intention. Plants have a fundamentally different awareness of the world than we do, but an awareness nonetheless. And plants desire, of course, to live and to make more plants and have the ability to partner with and train life that has brains to be a part of that cycle. Plants are constantly enticing with their wares, passing insects. They are aware when the predators come by that will eat them and they make themselves more bitter and they make themselves less attractive. But when they know bees and butterflies are in the neighborhood, they literally fill the air with perfume and pheromone saying, hey, I have got some great nectar over here. Would Mm. you please come for a visit? I long to be with you. Yeah, and the smell is pleasant to us. And Mm -hmm. those plants are beneficial to us. There's a relationship there. Whereas flies are pollinating plants that smell bad to us. Mm -hmm. That's why that whole other culture, to them, probably smells great. Fucking baby diapers uh, and horse manure smells great to a fucking fly. But we have this, like, this is why the Egyptians, I think, had that worship of bees, why we should have that worship of bees and of plants and that appreciation. You're reminding me of another, I think, mystically minded um, atheist. One of my favorites is Penn Gillette. He was explaining to me somewhere he had read that wheat domesticated us, Mm -hmm. that wheat yearns to be. So the ambitious gene made itself as appealing and useful. I don't know if it could have an impact on its usefulness, but it wanted to be, and it made us, it's, we are its bitch. Yeah. If you look at how much of the globe is covered in wheat, fucking wheat. We serve the wheat. Wheat won. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Wheat yearned and wheat is like the way that Trump puts his name on everything. That's fucking wheat, man. And wheat has a boss too. All of us are working for our gut bacteria that wanted the wheat carbohydrate in the first place. Oh, come on. Right? Like, I've always thought, like, if you're, this is true of any multicellular organism, you exist in symbiosis with some bacteria that are beneficial to you. And they basically train you to be their, like, mecha robot carrier to walk around and find food and defend them from other bacteria yeah your epidermis protects your gut bacteria from bacteriophages in the environment viruses that would otherwise eat that bacteria and i've long thought of us as just being giant cumbersome servants of the rapidly reproducing and evolving bacteria in our guts you yeah. think of us probably a lot like they don't think but they relate to us a lot of the way that we relate to the planet, like this slow-moving geological time. (laughs) You know, in one of our lives, a human life, how many bacterial generations is that? Countless, right? And so they're watching us. Now we're on drugs. (laughs) Now we're on drugs. Because drugs help us see that everything, as above, so below, right? So forget heaven and hell, as below, in our gut, I think about it all the time. So Val, who's my 
love of my life on my birthday set up a bubble machine and I'm looking at bubbles and some of them are stuck to each other. And I'm looking at these two perfect circles that pick the shape that was the most beneficial to the molecular structure and all that stuff. And some of them have formed together and they looked exactly like cells. And I was like, sometimes this shit is too obvious. We are to the planet as our bacteria is to our body. And it goes deeper and deeper and deeper into molecular relationships. And it goes further and further and further out into the behavior of planets. And I was like, sometimes, not always, but sometimes it's like the universe is going, how obvious do I need to make the interconnectivity and the way that energy moves in the world? Mm -hmm. And that, by the way, is what Alex Shia said. He was like, that's why myths are true, is because they're true if they tell you how energy moves in the world, emotional energy, psychological energy, and energy energy. If that's true, then the facts are secondary because we are so much more sensitive. That was one of my epiphanies on my birthday was Mm. I was like, our ability to tell and understand what is and isn't a good story isn't just psychological. It actually is. I feel like it's divine is, you know, that's not even in your gut. You're just like, that's not true. That's not the way of the world of the universe as a whole. Mm -hmm. That's not death and resurrection. Mm -hmm. And we need all of it. Sorry, that was a long tangent, but I get very excited. I like it when you say sorry for saying things that are enjoyable to listen to. (laughs) That is a fun cycle for me. (laughs) You you were saying, though, that the bacteria, I please go on about that. I mean, they want, they have generations and generations and we are the host like a planet. Like a planet. You're a planet for bacteria. They cultivate the soil down there. You feel good when they're healthy. Like we're finding that the the health of your gut biome can impact your mental health pretty dramatically. They influence the kind of uh, neurotransmitters you have. By the way, people have more neurons in their GI tract than dogs have in their skulls. So we have really brilliant intestines. Whoa! And uh, and so they use the same neurotransmitters that our brains use. And when our gut bacteria get unhealthy, they talk to those neurons. They're like, things are not good here. And they do that to make the organism unhappy. So the organism will do something differently that could benefit the bacteria. They are down there operating microchemical controllers for the human body that influence the way we live. And I did want to say one other thing, because you mentioned now we're on drugs. You know uh, that I'm a big fan of the kind of experiences you've had on your birthday. That I, I too, have, have taken times in my life to expand my awareness And one thing I really noticed, uh, one of my favorite things is when people send me videos of themselves during a psychedelic experience. Uh, The things that fascinate people when you're tripping. People Mm -hmm. look at not just art, chairs, Mm -hmm. a length of chain, a Mm -hmm. string. Mm -hmm. And I noticed recently how similar the wonder people in a psychedelic experience are with everyday objects to the way that babies experience the same objects. And we know. That's what I was just going to say. Yeah, we know that. seeing through your daughter's eyes. You're seeing what a baby sees when you trip. What you're doing is peeling back the narrative that your brain trained itself to tell from infancy to your first and second year of life. And you're viewing things kind of more raw again. And Mm -hmm. that change in senses, you talked about creativity. The reason I think it helps so much is it helps us jump out of the rut we're in. The survival story our brain created so we could survive, which is good and wonderful and beneficial and confining, 
these experiences can help us step back out of and re-experience the beauty and majesty of this natural world we live in yes, with yes. the same wonder that babies have. Buddy, you're cooking on every cylinder today. <laughs> I don't even know how to say it. I, so on my birthday, I, I went upstairs. I never go upstairs. We don't have a lot of reason to go upstairs. It's kind of like, it's, the, it's two rooms. Mm-hmm. It's the guest room. And, but I went up there and it was, it was like living in a painting. I wasn't hallucinating. I took a very small dose, but I got in the bathtub. I've never been in that bathtub again, but I was in my body. I just wanted to see what it would feel like mm-hmm. to be in that bathtub. And I, ha- I, I turned the water on and I, I took a bath and I, I had this thought. I was like, we don't, cause I've wanted to redo the bathtub downstairs into like a big luxurious bath. And then I was like, that's it. You don't want a new bathtub. You don't want a new big bathtub. You want a consciousness that can enjoy the bathtub you already have. And it's like they say, you don't buy a book to read the book. You buy the book in hopes that one day you'll have enough leisure time to read a book. So you're sort of betting, I bet I'll be relaxed on a Saturday coming up. That's why it feels so good to buy a book. Mm. Similarly, it feels good to buy a big bathtub because you're like, it'll feel so good. Surely I'll be relaxed enough and, and have a leisure enough life to take a bathtub. What you really want is the equanimity and the peace and the mm. centeredness and the stillness to get in the motherfucking dirty, small. I'm six foot six. Every bath is small for me. It was dirty and small. And it was one of, it was the best fucking bath of my life. And it wasn't because, I mean, it, 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 I, I just want to be clear to people that haven't taken this drug. I wasn't just experiencing euphoria anyway. Right, right. The, the bath informed, I was actually taking a bath. Mm. I quote this all the time. We mm. mentioned Gunger. They, they say one, light, one day lived in love is better than a million years of fame. And that's what they're talking about. Yeah. One bath done consciously which you can do, by the way, and I do do without chemical assistance. And mm-hmm. it's, not, it's not difficult. It takes some awareness. It takes some intention. It takes some stillness. It might take a little bit of meditation or some breathing or maybe some music or whatever you need. Take a fucking bath. Mm-hmm. People go places and they've never been anywhere. You, you know what I'm saying? That's I what- know. People think the answer is, if I went to Rome, the reason they, they've shown that uh, Eckhart Tolle talks about the reason why people are more present when they're traveling, and this goes back to what you were saying about uh, chemicals like LSD turning off your brain's uh, ability to prioritize and predict and um, categorize the world. One of the reasons why traveling is so pleasant is because you don't know where you are. You're lost. Yeah. You're not walking to your coffee shop. You're, you're in Rome and you're going, uh, espresso, espresso. So you become more present and alive. But guess what, silly beans? You can shut that stuff off with practice. Yeah, that's we, right. This is what Richie Rohr says. He says, we, and this goes back to your book, and I'm going to throw it to you after this because I was going to ask you this anyway. He goes, especially by the time you're 30, by the time you're 40, you, you're you. He's like the seven... Uh, pathways are there and basically everything that you do or say or think gets run through those same seven fucking pathways and that's and he goes that's why people are more boring as they get older he's why this is why 
older people tend to be miserable is because it's just, and now you have even fewer of them. You're just running it through judgment or bitterness or ugliness or anger or whatever it is because it's easier, it's cheaper, it's faster. So he's like, there's nothing new. This is why I've been meditating lately and Mm. trying to be more serious about my practice is he goes, meditation, shutting off the man on the puppy, on the crocodile, getting that out of the way and just being the pure awareness then he uses religious language, but stay with me, everybody. He goes, it gives God a chance to actually get at you. And you could look at that scientifically and say, it's stripping away all of those Mm. preconditioned pathways and giving your brain a motherfucking opportunity to do something new, which by the way, is perhaps the point of life. Let's stay flowing and vital. Let's stay growing. Let's call in the bees and get them to pollinate us internally Mm. to be bigger, more inclusive, more radiant, more loving, more abundant. And that's why we meditate. Fuck sleeping better. Fuck your anxiety. Fuck it's good for your productivity. Give awareness itself give the mystery itself a clean white piece of paper to say here let me get out of the fucking way Mm. so something new can come in and that's why we sit i don't want to trip i don't want to see buddha i don't need to see jesus floating on a surfboard shooting glitter out of the tips of his fingers I want me to go away. I want to play a game that I can't win. And I want something new to fucking get implanted. Motherfucker, yeah! (laughs) Right? (laughs) Ah, in the radio land, they can't see me. What tears away? (laughs) Mike, we're so similar, you and me. Let me tell you how... You don't even know. You can't know how much that story... that you just shared landed with me and those insights. Tell tell me. Well, I was reflecting this morning on our time together today. And I thought back to the first time I was on, you made it weird. We met at Rob Bell's kitchen table. Yep. I had just started with a a new friend, something called the liturgist. We did not have a podcast yet. (laughs) Wow. I I came on, you made it weird. Yeah, and uh, I thought, how wonderful it is to talk to Pete again today, and how much I savor it. And um, after you made it weird, and the liturgy started a podcast, I became a public figure, and I have a particular set of giftedness around being a public figure, mainly in that I can describe complex things in a way that people understand them, and I'm good at responding to people's emotions. And a huge part of that process for me was meditation. Mm. And for me, meditation was a way to sleep better and to improve my productivity mm-hmm. and to see Jesus shooting glitter out of his fingertips. <laughs> like all those were the things I went for. And do you know what I learned about myself, Pete, in trauma therapy? Uh, yes. Was all my early meditation experiences, I thought I was some kind of natural guru. I got into such deep places so quickly and so easily And it turns out the whole time I was having trauma-informed dissociation. Whoa. So I was going into dissociative states through meditation, which, let me say, isn't wrong or bad. I dissociate easily because I've had an incredibly traumatic life. Mm -hmm. And dissociation is a way that my body protects me from the ways I've been really hurt in the past. I'm a 
a sexual assault survivor. I experienced severe physical abuse as part of the cycle of bullying that I was in as a child. So the fact that when I meditate and people say, clear your mind, I go, what's next? Yeah. Okay, so I can dissociate. And then you talk about this other thing about getting the person out of the way. And I didn't get the person out of the way so much as the person just ceased to exist in a dissociative defensive reaction. So the work I've been doing now is to return to meditation, but to return to meditation in a, a somatic awareness, a connection to my physicality. Mm. And so I woke up this morning and it's such a stressful time. I'm trying to figure out how to launch a book at what I think is going to be the peak daily death in the United States from a pandemic. I think that most people who are ever going to die from COVID-19 are going to do so the week my book comes out. Yeah. And that put me in such a dark place. And I thought, but I'm so excited to be with Pete. How can I get back into a place where I can be present with Pete? And the other thing I've learned from my trauma is I'm really codependent. And uh, I, I end up leaving the liturgist, which I co-founded with Michael, because I became aware I'd entered into a codependent relationship with the audience of the podcast. So I was so busy responding to their emotional needs that I neglected mine to a point that I got heart disease and went to the hospital and almost died. Wow. And so I was trying to decide, how do I show up today for me first to be with my friend Pete second and then to completely forget there's a public that will hear this. Mm. And the way I did that, was to meditate. And mm. you talk about being in the bath. Pete, the way I got ready for this, is I got <laughs> in the shower and I turned the water up as hot as I can stand it, which is not very hot. And I turned around and I stood with the water hitting like the back of my skull. And I just waited for that, you know the feeling, the like ASMR tingles. And I waited for that feeling and then I went into it. And instead of trying to like, how can I be a better public figure? How can my productivity be better? How can all these things, how can I connect with my body? Because Mm -hmm. I know in my body is a genuine and sincere joy and delight to be with my friend Pete. Mm -hmm. And even on Zoom. (laughs) And um, that's why what you just said brought tears to my eyes, because I feel like as someone who has been meditating daily now for 12 years. <laughs> right, right. I feel like I'm just discovering it. Yeah. Dude, I'm so happy that that landed with you because that I felt it changed my brain cuz I was not motivated when when the point of meditation was to go deeper and deeper and get to trippier and trippier places. And of course what what the peatness does with that is now I have a better story. Mm-hmm. I saw I saw a blue light or whatever the fuck it is. Uh, that was so uninteresting to me, mm. but to get rid of the peatness and to have nothing to win, but to become available for what the Christian tradition calls grace, mm. uh, what everybody calls just inexplicable change and revolution inside your body. And when I see the atrophy in family members, as especially as they get older, I'm like, Oh, this just became maybe 
the most important habit that I have Mm -hmm. is getting out of the way and being available for that sort of stuff. So I'm so happy to hear that. I also think people on their 50th birthday, the government should just hand them a tab. (laughs) That's hilarious. Well, dude, like that's who needs it. Not if you're 22, you don't need this stuff, but if you're 42, you might. (laughs) My, my experience with psychedelics has been a crash course in like, stop thinking the way you've been thinking, which, Mm -hmm. which when I was young and really, really interested in control and having the right brain and the brain, I mean the correct brain and the brain that the teachers and everybody told me to have. Um, now that I'm older and I've had more experience with it and I see that you're still in control. One of my favorite things, it was a, it's on the documentary Dying to Know. Um, his name is uh, Andrew Wheel, the nutritionist. He was in the Harvard Psychedelic Group. He told the story where he goes, and the LSD told me to drop out of school. I didn't want to do that, so I didn't, and I went to medical school. And I was like, ah, that's it. <laughs> that's such an important thing is mm-hmm. my, my psychedelics tell me the same thing. They're like, don't you see? Uh, it's all about love. It's all about connection. It's all here right now. And then when I come back, I can still be like, that's all well and good, but um, you know we need groceries. We need uh, to send Leela to school. So you're, you're still engaged in the conversation. That was really mm-hmm. important for me. Mm-hmm. Um, but every time I do it, like I said, my brain goes from up and down vertical lines to a crisscross pattern where everywhere I look now, I see um, connection. Mm. And that actually goes back to what I wanted to ask you about was the way that the uh, microbes living in our stomach are like us on a planet. What, and you were saying that those things can send signals to our body for a long time. You know, I had, I have what I consider self-diagnosed a drinking problem. And a lot of it had to do with psychological factors. Um, I would say that was probably 90% of it. I can't say I'm making this up, but 10% of it, I think was a carbohydrate mm-hmm. <laughs> addiction mm-hmm. that my brain was just like, give us that stuff. Uh, I know it's not technically sugar, but it goes in and my body would just like relax. It becomes sugar. It becomes sugar. It was a heavy, this is why I think people in my family, they stop drinking, they start drinking 20 Cokes a day. I think there's the same microbes are going like, that's why Pete Rawlings, it's not the alcohol. It's what's telling you to have the alcohol. It's not the Cokes. It's what's telling you to have the Cokes. We need to regain control over the the problem. I've got a book, a chapter in the book called Pizza and Porn. That's about compulsions and how they oh, impact I'm us psychologically. Ahead I'm yeah. jumping ahead to it. Please talk about it. You want to give us a little taste? I couldn't be more interested. The the it's really simple. Literally anything that relieves a feeling of anxiety, loneliness, or boredom can become a compulsion. Because your brain is paying attention. So if you drink alcohol, that is a great way in terms of what you feel in the short term of getting rid of anxiety. And your brain goes, well, gosh, I was anxious. Then I felt pleasure. And because your body was figuring that shit out before you had a brain, your body goes, well, pay attention to that. Do that again. The next time you feel anxious with a little intent, you you go, oh, I felt better when I drank. You drank. Before you know it, your brain gets rewired so that your decision-making machinery is out of the loop entirely. And all that happens is the, the stimulus is I feel anxiety. I start drinking. So. If you then stop drinking, you don't have a way to cope with anxiety. Your brain has a list of things. 
that get rid of feelings of anxiety. It just goes down the list and picks the next one. Wow. In this case, Coke or, you know, in my case, it might, it's pizza. P- forget, forget any other thing. The thing that is like literally my drug. Yeah. And it, I, it's funny. And I make jokes about it. Pizza almost killed me. No, I know, dude. Pizza is, when I talk to food addicts, when I see food addiction in myself, it's always pizza. It's like, you think it's dough that they're tossing in the air. I think it might be Xanax. I'm, <laughs> I'm not convinced that it's not Klonopin. Because it, it's, like, it's like a snow day in your stomach. You have mm-hmm. so much fat and so much... I'm not shaming pizza, by the way. I'm just saying the, the food... Best. Yeah, yeah. And I'm also just saying... A lot of things have a lot of fat. For some reason, the way I said fat sounded like I was really attacking it. Uh, it's like you have so much fat and carbs in your stomach weighing salt. you down and salt. Forget it. You're bu- There's a line in Supersize Me where they talk about giving a kid a 24-ounce Coke. It was like, his brain ha- is defenseless against <laughs> what is about to happen, the caffeine and the sugar. So the grown-up version that we are defenseless to is motherfucking pizza. And Mm -hmm. dude, what I was shaking my head at when you were talking is I'm just like, look at this predicament. It is so, on one hand, it's so ridiculous. And I think what your book is doing such a great job is going, all right, it's ridiculous. How can we hack it? How can Mm -hmm. we use that in our favor? Because I remember when I did the Tony Robbins tapes, which really did change my life. It was maybe 10 years ago less than that. I was going on these hikes and he would say, when you're going down the hill and you just had the hike, you're done with the hike and you get that endorphin rush, say out loud, Mm -hmm. this is what a hike feels like and say it over and over and over. So basically I think what we're looking at, again, I got this from Richie for a positive thing to take root in your brain. You're looking at like a 90 second meditation on it. That's why a bad tweet will make you feel horrible for the whole day, even though you didn't even meditate on it. But a good one you need to like invite in and sit down with and go like, holy shit, Mike says that talking with me really makes, makes his day and that makes him happy. I need to like let that in. He calls it the Velcro Teflon thing, or mm-hmm. I think that's just what it is. Negative things are Velcro, positive things are Teflon. So when you're hiking on the way down, you say over and over, this is a hike, this is a hike, this is a hike. And I try and do it after I eat an entire pizza and I wake up in the middle of the night and I feel like I'm going to barf because I had too much fucking pizza because I really took that whole, nobody tells me what to do. I'm a grown up. Life is short. You deserve to be happy. Misfiring. It's also deeply informed by the part of my brain that thinks if I don't eat constantly, I'll Mm -hmm. die, which is wrong. That's my crocodile getting in the mix. But it used to be right. It used to be right. That's right. <laughs> we, need to, we need to lovingly say longer applies. I see that you're trying to help. It no longer applies. But when I get up and I feel like I might vomit, like I could vomit if I wanted to, I say to myself, this is what a pizza feels like. I, I'm saying dipshit to be funny, but like I need to get that into my brain through basically, I don't know if that's uh, priming, but I'm trying to lock in a feeling and a thought well the thing i've uh the biggest conclusion i think that comes to the whole book is the way in which punitive and shaming response aren't effective behavioral modifiers because i've wondered i'm lactose intolerant so when i eat a pizza i feel like a muscle-bound boxer 
begins to hit me in the stomach and intestine for about three hours. And then I have, usually in the middle of the night, two hours of extraordinarily painful diarrhea every time I eat pizza. Not sometimes, every time. That should be Papa John's. That's how the reckoning will come is he'll be like, we are pizza. We are so good. You will eat it. Even if you know you're going to get a Vander Holyfield and then liquid diarrhea fire is going to shoot out of your ass for two hours. You'll still eat pizza. That's how good we are. Papa John. It is that good. And uh, it would make a great campaign. I'm sure they'll launch it immediately. <laughs> you know what? They don't need it. They, they don't. don't need it. They have so- pizza. Yeah, so what I've, what I've learned to do instead is one, yeah, motivate on positive things. But two, when I'm aware, the, the, this book is about simply becoming aware of the patterns, seeing them, inviting your awareness into what's already happening in your body, and then being aware that this stuff is happening because your body's really good at keeping you alive. Mm. Your body, like you're listening right now, congratulations. You represent an unbroken lineage of successful life that goes back to the first fucking cell that existed in the oceans of this planet wow you are a winner Mm. so let's show some gratitude to our body so when my body says to get pizza and i know that's self-destructive if i catch that i say to my body thank you for keeping me alive thank you for also making me crave pizza because now i know i'm anxious and i did it before i craved pizza that's that fucking Pete Rollins thing. The pizza isn't the problem. The mm-hmm. pizza is the symptom of the problem. Which, by the way, is the same thing Richard Rohr says about sin, which is not a word I enjoy, and it's because it was so misappropriated. He says everything that we call sin is a symptom of sin. Mm. He's like, your, your shoplifting, your rage, your lust for deep, dark internet porn is a symptom of a problem. Mm-hmm. It's a symptom of, and we can call that sin, what Eckhart Tolle calls it, unconsciousness, which is pretty not that spiritual. We're just saying there's something going on that you are not conscious of, mm-hmm. and it could be psychological or what have you. But that's why, let's talk about porn a little bit, because I realize I, I almost just said, I hope this isn't an overshare. What the fuck, pod, what the fuck podcast do I think I'm doing? Uh, but I just said to Val, I was like, I, I had a, a bad visit with my family and it really, uh, I was thinking about it afterwards, not the whole visit, but there were bad parts. And then I was like, you know, I think when I was a kid, I would uh, jerk off, not because I was horny, but because I didn't feel comfortable with my rage. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I think that's something that Pete still does. It's anxiety, it's ugliness, it's pettiness, it's shortness, it's grumpiness, it's rage, it's anger. It's like the worst parts of me and jerking off to porn or not, uh, in the modern world, it often was porn. I was like, that was the Klonopin pizza is afterwards you just have that haze. My testosterone is literally lower. Mm -hmm. I feel less aggression. So my brain, I always said though, I was, I I did on stage back when we used to do that. I was like, you know, when you're looking at millions and millions of different clips and selecting one that speaks exactly to your erotic (laughs) fantasy, that moment and watching two people you'll never meet, never even be in the same room with, uh, fuck in HD while you jerk off and your brain 
has no capacity to differentiate that from reality, really. And you're watching weirder and weirder things because we all became novelty addicts. So you want to see stranger and stranger and stranger. It's not even about uh, nipples or, or asses anymore. You're just looking for that next hit of novelty. I was like, that can't be. I would always be like, look, no judgment. But that can't be what this thing that crawled out of the ocean was designed to do. Yeah. And I don't know what it's doing to our brains. Science Mike, what is it doing? <laughs> Not a lot good. And I want to I want to start by saying like I'm very sex positive. Yes. And I like the notion of sexual media doesn't offend me on some moral level. I mean, good God, people, live your lives. I don't care. You're not going to get... There's not a lot of judgment uh, from me unless you're literally harming another person or ignoring harm being done to them. Completely agree. By the way, when Pornhub put out free porn for people in Italy during the lockdown and now for us, I was like, isn't this a company that makes its billions by stealing other people's content and uploading it Well, they used to. They don't anymore? Pornhub got so successful as tube sites destroyed the porn industry they just went around siphoning up the real studios and they own most of them now. really yeah and now they, the companies like that are the the amazons of of sexual media yeah it's a sexual monopoly it is yeah they own this town so to speak so but still are the actors and producers getting paid it's a it, it can be a wildly predatory industry yeah yeah Sorry, right. that was a sidebar. You were saying it's not doing a lot good. It's not doing a lot for a race. And, so. and it's not because we're ashamed of it. No. No, the reason I mentioned that was I was going to tweet that to be like, there's no prude here. I will look at pornography again, even though I consider myself off it. That just means I don't look at it every time I want to. And that breaks down to about once every couple months, which is pretty good for me. So no shame. Science Mike, hit it. So remember, bodies came first, then brains. Bodies navigated the world by looking at relatively simple signals in the environment to guide behavior. There's a zoologist named Nico Tinbergen who came up with something called the hierarchical model of behavior, which basically said there's these stimulus that organisms look for that they fill up these reservoirs of potential action, a block gets lifted and they move down a chain and they drive complex behaviors that way. And to test this, he took fake wooden bird's eggs and he painted them bright blue and he put them in a nest with real bird's eggs and when a mother bird saw a bigger bluer egg she'd be like that's going to be a huge chick now she doesn't think this consciously but her body systems respond that's a signal of vitality so she would begin to nurture this egg at the expense of the real eggs wow and then he realized that if he made um really uh bread mouthed large mouth fake bird chicks mother birds would try to feed those chicks while her real chicks starved and this is kind of brings it all the way around to porn he made fake turkey heads that were just really pretty i guess really pretty turkeys and male turkeys would ignore actual female turkeys to try to mate with a turkey head on a stick Pornhub is turkey heads. It is. The, We're the, fucking turkey heads. The name in science is supernormal stimuli. Stimuli that's bigger than what happens in the natural world. Porn is a supernormal stimulus. Pizza is a supernormal stimulus. iPhones are supernormal stimulus. These things give our brains signals that they weren't evolved to respond to. <laughs> so when we look at pornography, absolutely, 
you create a degree of sexual novelty and access that has never existed in human history. It's available instantly and on demand. No one sees you, so you don't have to deal with the shame response. And it's really bad for your brain-body system. What we're finding is, number one, it rewires the way people relate to each other in actual intimacy. And two, because of hormonal changes in the body, it reduces our potential to have actual intimacy. A record number of young men in their 20s today have erectile dysfunction. It's not because they're in bad health. It's because the the brain-body systems behind arousal have been so hijacked by a sexual compulsion that an actual physical partner in their presence is no longer sufficient to activate that loop. This is what happens when we become, we become burnt out or overstimulated through supernormal stimuli. And I just want to make a confession. I can talk about porn really comfortably and easily because I'm not super into porn, but it's only because I'm a sexual assault survivor and I find porn really triggering. Tri- mm. Porn, when I watch it, looks like something that happened to me in the past and it scares me. Mm. But people I know, including my wife, love porn and watch it often. And so I don't judge it. I just want to like say, pizza literally is my porn. Um, if I could watch porn, I probably never would have weighed 300 pounds, but I needed some other way. So yeah. sex makes this like really evocative thing to talk about. But it's not that unique in terms that's of compulsion. If it's yeah. if it's anything that's a substance is food is sex. Any any compulsion tied to our core survival drives, those are the ones that have the potential to become debilitating and to blossom into full blown addictions. Right, and they make better ink. They make better headlines. Right. You don't you don't see too many Dateline exposes on this is your brain on pizza. But obviously, this, the, the human component, first and foremost, but I also do think the shame, uh, the puritanical sort of echoes of our collective pain body makes us really interested in the naughty bits. Like how, yeah. how are, like everybody, not too many people, I know some people are ashamed of their, their food drives, but for the most part, Americans are like, I love to eat and that's fine, but we're not great. We're not Germany. <laughs> You know right. what I mean? It's like, of course I came when I saw the dog. He has that little hiney. Like, there's nothing. <laughs> there's well, nothing like that porn, here. Uh, using Pornhub and other people's public data, I analyzed it in my book, and I found out that as conservative religiosity goes up in a zip code, so does the amount of porn consumption per capita and the extremeness of the nature of that porn. Of course. We're seeing in the data that shame-based approaches to sexuality deepen the problems that shame-based approaches to sexuality are trying to solve. It's more sex. It's more teen sex. It's more pregnancy. It's a higher abortion rate. When you go to more secular and more open societies about sexuality, you don't have porn consumption uh, or porn compulsions, and you don't have these, these wild taboos. It's like if you look at what the popular search terms are, the big blue states are pretty vanilla. Mm. And the, the deep red states in the South are really extreme. Wow. I think it's funny that no, nobody really cares about data mining when it comes to porn. It's, it's so fascinating. That is my porn. <laughs> yeah. I was like, wait, you published a data set? Oh, my God. That's, that's hot. hilarious. <laughs> yeah, but we get so mad if you're like, you know, Alexa's listening to you or whatever it might be. Uh, we, we rightfully get mad. But I've never seen someone be like, don't check my search words. Because porn itself is so, in its core, is the belief that you are anonymous, mm-hmm. uh, which is, I don't know, I, it's interesting. I, I've said this a million, so I'll keep it brief and I'll put it to you. 
Oscar Wilde said, the only way to get rid of temptation is to yield to it. Of course, he meant that in sort of like a laissez-faire sort of like, let's, so let's have another drink. But I think there's something really to that that is deeply spiritual. As my homie Rambas would say, like if you are adverse to something, you're still charging it with your energy. You're still engaging with it. You're Sisyphus pushing the rock, basically. Mm-hmm. The only way out is to go, that is footage of people fucking on a computer screen that makes blood flow to my dick and I manipulate it, and that lowers my stress level. You need to see it what it is. But when I was like, this is what's keeping me from God, this is what's keeping me going to hell and the devil, no surprise, of course, that that places with uh, more fundamentalist or more extreme leanings Mm -hmm. would be that way. I'm Mm -hmm. not surprised at all. Um, I, I was bringing this up earlier, was the idea that the microbes in our body being like, citizens in a planet and how the microbes will send messages of discomfort to our bodies to get the bodies to change. I mean, that feels like a pretty good segue to coronavirus. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I'm just like, I don't think the planet is intending this, but isn't it interesting that we'll never look, uh, I saw something on Facebook today about like, basically the world is realizing how reliant we are on, on the people we don't want making $15 an hour. And I was like, wow, that's a global awakening. You'll never look at an Uber driver or a Postmate the same way again. You'll never, you'll never look at anything the same way again. Mm-hmm. But t- talk a little bit about Corona. I know you have some insights too. Anything, do you think that, that we're learning a lesson, uh, a silver lining there or what, what's going on? I hope for silver linings. I can imagine a few. One is... As we're recording this, uh, jobless claims in the United States official have gone to 10 million. Those numbers came out today. Um, I'm sure it will be much higher if this is aired any time later than this afternoon. (laughs) Um, But what I'm hoping is we have a period of extended social distancing in front of us. Sorry, I was like, we were laughing at the joke, not the situation. No, gosh, not the situation. Yeah, but I don't just raw audio of you being like, it'll be higher. And I'm like, ha ha! (laughs) I'm laughing just at your observation. Um, And and social distancing, we have a lot ahead of us. We do, yeah. So it's going to be, I I don't see us easing up before June, certainly. And when we ease up, the curve's going to come back. So we're going to have to clamp things back down again. So what I'm hoping we learn to do together is we realize that economies and societies are just a play pretend game we do together. Mm. And the ideologies we fight about are just a way to fight over who gets what. And I'm hoping this forces a reckoning where people, we have to decide together, do we want mass starvation or not? Do we want mass homelessness or not? Because if the answer is not, we literally can create whatever story we want to keep people fed and in their homes. Yeah. And it, when we realize that, we might realize that boogie words like socialism <laughs> and socialize are really just ways of saying we make sure people are taken care of. And by the way, these are the people who actually take care of us because without them, the uh, corporate CEOs, the podcasters, the comedians, the authors of the world, we can't do shit to keep you alive. Once yeah. you're like entertain, once your needs are taken care of, we can entertain you. Yeah. We can't keep you alive. So I'm one hoping that we realize that the way we're structuring our economy is like doesn't match what people do for the economy. And two, we live in LA. 
the air has been pristine for two weeks. Yeah. So are there ways we can structure economies that let people live and have food, but don't utterly destroy the places can more in which we live be over email yeah right. like can more podcasts be over zoom yes yes it's really interesting <laughs> that we're all sort of seeing that i mean i remember when radiohead wouldn't do letterman that did uh send a video link from london they're like why are we flying to new york to perform for 300 people in the in the theater when it's really just about the tv thing and everybody was like well that's so weird i'm like i hope we're all figuring out why the fuck it's like that old Brian Regan joke. He had a joke about a log, a truck with logs driving north on the highway. And he said, then he saw a truck with logs driving south on the highway. He's like, you'd think one phone call could have solved that. Like, <laughs> you guys have logs? Because I'm bringing you logs. Oh, you got logs? It's like one of the funniest bits. But that's what we're realizing is like, motherfucker, why am I driving to Santa Monica to sit with nine other people that live on the east side yeah it doesn't make any sense Mm -mm. and i could see us figuring that out pretty quick Mm -hmm. and figuring out you're right it it, like socialism i haven't heard that word since this has been happening really and just because we're so anti-social right now even that just has a different ring in my ear i'm like let's get things as social as possible let's realize the inter connectivity and the interdependence of us all. You also, I think this thing helped us realize that art is deeply important, Mm -hmm. uh, but celebrity is not. Mm -hmm. Celebrity doesn't really help you, uh, especially people that are just famous. I was talking to Berbigli about that. People that are just famous to be famous. It's like, what are you doing for us? But but I was interested. I think, uh, obviously, this isn't... um, You're putting your book out during this time. People are reading books. We're turning to art. We're turning to movies and TV. I am making. I also love is blind, which is not art. It's it's a piece of shit. I make five shows a week now. I'm just kidding. You know what I mean? Oh yeah, yeah. I've launched all these new uh, YouTube and Instagram TV things uh, to help people cope right now. Yeah, I'm making more money than ever. Have Hillary and I are going to launch a show called How We Feel in the Real Neil Future to to navigate feelings. Mm. Um, and people are lonely and at home and confused and frightened. And I realized like at this moment, me being like good at helping people deescalate feelings and explain science, like there's a real opportunity here to, to not just make people feel better, but to save lives. I mean, I, you know, I've been, I'm making all all these COVID-19, uh, pieces of content and not because like I want a view count. But because every time I can convince someone, no, seriously, completely social distance for the next four to six weeks. I did the math at my current impression count and the normal published responsive rates for advertising. That doesn't sound like you. By myself, <laughs> just doing what I do, if I shift to getting people to take the right actions in response to this pandemic, I could present, prevent 30,000 deaths wow. between a few weeks ago in July. Wow. And so I was like, I want to prevent 30,000 deaths. Yeah. So then I just got in the mode of being like, hey, everybody, it's okay. it's okay. Let's 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 respond to the real thing, which is our feelings. Let's take the time to to get together and work through feelings and then once we deescalate instead of having anxiety and a fear-based narrative to drive advertising, let's sit together in a deescalated place and talk about how to intelligently respond to this pandemic together. Mm. 
And um, it's been wonderful to see people not just respond to it, but then repeat it. That's what I'm enjoying is seeing people host their own non-anxious evidence-based conversations about a pandemic. Um, because if we take the panic away and it's the, the pain is so real. I mean, we're talking about on the low side, a hundred thousand people dying in the United States. That's a big deal, but we can keep it from being 2 million. And, um, there's not a lot of times when we realize that we can watch Netflix all day and save 1.9 million lives in this country. Yeah. Yeah. And it could be great British bake off and that would really do it. <laughs> well, let's do it. Mike, just, just because it's what we're going through right now, what is some uh, non stress based evidence based uh, I, I hate to say, give me the hits, but I don't want to labor people uh, who might be listening to this podcast to get away from that stuff with an hour. And what are what are some of the standouts for how to live social distancing? Just just hit it. Doesn't have to be brilliant. Just give me the basics. Oh, I got brilliant on tap all the time, baby. Don't worry about that. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, it's a thug life video. The little glasses need to rotate in. Bump. Number one, take care of your feelings. If you're watching the news every day and it makes you feel anxious, don't watch the news every day. There's nothing you can do different today than yesterday based on the news that will help. You can step off completely guilt-free the news cycle right now. Check in once a week. Listen to the announcements made by your local public health officials and follow them. If you do those things, you will save lives. Number two, It is normal and okay and expected to feel afraid, angry, anxious, or sad right now. We are going through a collective grief as a society. It should hurt if it hurts. Your body is doing the right thing. Your body's meant to keep you alive. And right now, your body's not sure who's going to be alive in six months. So, of course, it hurts. Give yourself the space and the time to breathe. I want you to rest. I don't want you to worry about the great American novel right now. I don't want you to worry about increasing your productivity. Take care of yourself and your feelings. And please, unless your work involves keeping people alive in the medical field or for food or safety or security or some other aspect that keeps people fed and alive, keep your ass at home. Don't even go over to a friend's house for a visit right now because We know this virus is more deadly and more contagious than any virus in the last 100 plus years. If we are not careful, it won't just kill old people. It will kill people in every age group in human society, including people in their 20s. So please, please, please stay home. But know this. This is the most important thing you can hear of anything I'm about to say. We will get through this. It's going to get scarier and scarier and scarier all the way through the middle of May. But if we're following social distancing interventions, by the middle of May, every day will get less scary. And then we can start to work together to think of ways to see a limited number of people in person again, to keep our economy going, 
and figure out what the next year and a half looks like until there's a vaccine for this virus. But for now, stay home and stay close to others. Now, how does that make sense? Stay home and stay close. We have all these wonderful devices, absolutely FaceTime 10 hours a day, absolutely connect with each other. And when you feel sad and when you feel lonely and when you feel hurting, reach out because someone you know feels the same way and they want to get your call just as much as you want to place one. Wow. Science book. <laughs> Science book. You are fun. I loved that. I loved that so much. Um, I don't know if you noticed, like, I've been looking at your face the whole time, which is funny about Zoom conferencing means, like, I'm looking down to the yeah, right. And yeah. then I started that sequilically to the audience, and I stared directly at the lens, I, I even though notice. this is a podcast. <laughs> I did notice. And I, and I loved it. It's so funny. <laughs> this quote made me, it's a Carl Sagan quote. Oh. You told me to read Pale Blue Dot. I still haven't done it. What a schmuck. <laughs> what a schmuck. It's so Maybe. good. I did read this quote, though, and I think you're going to like it. And it's, it has a lot to do with the self-love that you talk about in your mm-hmm. book. It says, every one of us in the cosmic perspective is precious. If a person disagrees with you, let him live. In a hundred billion galaxies, you will not find another. I think about that all the time. There's a, uh, there's a, unfortunately, there's like kind of a, a street person. I, I, I want to be sensitive in my language. A homeless person who is definitely uh, mentally disturbed. I, again, mm-hmm. I don't know the right language. Um, and he <laughs> walks up and down our street and it's very, very distracting. Um, especially since we're home all the time. And I think of this quote, I, I know that's like a weird way to do it, but to tie it into what we were talking about before, where it's like the willingness, Richard Dorr says transformation has a lot to do with your willingness and your patience. So I say, I'm willing, I'm willing. I'll say, Lord have mercy, whatever, whatever mm. I need, mm. or I'll say the Buddhist thing, may you be happy uh, to him. Um, and I say this Carl Sagan quote, which is like, I know he might not seem special to Pete and the story of Pete, but cosmically speaking, and you say this in your book to the people reading it and to the people listening, whoever you are, you are fucking awesome Mm -hmm. and incredible Mm -hmm. and one of a kind in a hundred billion galaxies, which don't even pretend like your brain can hold on to (laughs) how big that is. No. We're just saying forever and ever, but it's scientifically true. That's again, Mr. Rogers, why I love that. He's like, nobody is like you in all the world and people can love you just how you are. Mm -hmm. And you talk about that in your book, that that's how you sort of got in touch with your self love. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Is that, I mean, I was going to, I should have said, is that how you feel about (laughs) liking yourself? You talk about liking yourself and, and then loving yourself. I had an amazing experience. Very recently, right as I was finishing up the book, is uh, I looked in the mirror and I saw my reflection and I thought, what a wonderful person. (laughs) What an absolute treasure. What a person I look on with such affection Mm. as I see in the mirror right now. In my whole life, when I look in the mirror, it's a thing I could tolerate. And it that all came from me 
doing a lot of really hard work in trauma therapy and being able to look at me as a child with affection. And I was, uh, I didn't know I was autistic when I was a kid, but I have autism and I wore Magnum PI style Hawaiian shirts. I was obese. I had a copper bowl haircut. I didn't look people in the eye. I uh, was very awkward, highly imaginative. And I've always had such shame Mm. over the child I was. And now I realize what that little kid survived. And Mm. do you know, Pete, as a child, I was so sweet and kind, even to people who were cruel to me. Mm. And I be- I've grown to become so proud of that child. And now I'm proud of the adult that child became. Mm. I like me. I love me. And that's such a countercultural notion. Like we, I don't care what background you are, what faith tradition you are or not a part of. We tend to think of people who would say they love themselves. You're like, well, what fuck is your problem, man? You need to need to calm down but uh i think this inability to love ourselves truly not to project a false machismo or some 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 sense of superiority to, to defend and hide our insecurity but a genuine love and acceptance of the self begins to end all these struggles where i'm at today with loving myself I realize if I'm at war with myself, if I'm in some big battle, I'm not paying attention. Mm. I'm like, oh, I, I'm so, I've been eating so many cookies the last couple of weeks, just eating, eating cookies. And I, I grabbed a bag of cookies. And I went to eat three cookies. And I was like, what is wrong with you? And I went, whoa, what is wrong with you? You're surviving a global pandemic and you're afraid and you want to feel happy by eating three cookies. but Maybe now set the three cookies in the package because now we're aware, but not because you're bad. Mike, I love you. What I want you to know is Jenny is sitting in the living room and you can go give her a hug and that will feel better than the three cookies felt. Mm. And so I just did that instead. And today I had two cookies. (laughs) (laughs) This is not, my book is not about turning into some polished, perfect edition that you could be my book is actually about loving accepting what is there Mm. simply because that is good and not because of any benefit of change that happens later that's so funny man again i've been looking at my own habits with eating and sometimes i I do try to say like the part of my brain stem that thinks i'm going to starve to death if i don't eat these three cookies i just go like i see you or Mm -hmm. here's what i'm gonna do based on our conversation Thank you. Mm. It's the same thing I do with my ego. Duncan Trussell helped me do this. It's like, you've helped me so much. I really appreciate you. Instead of being like, get the fuck out of here. You're not spiritual. Or saying to the part of my brain that says, eat a whole pizza. Get the fuck out of here. You're an asshole. Just being like, I get it. This just isn't the right move right now. You're doing your best, crocodile. But like the mm-hmm. the man, or at least the puppy, the puppy mm-hmm. says have three slices of pizza. <laughs> <laughs> Let one of them in charge, because crocodiles yeah. eating the box too. Um, well, the I, puppy's wonderful because the puppy want, wants, you know, dogs. They want food, but they also want social connection. And you can bribe the puppy with social mm-hmm. connection, and they'll forget all about food. The crocodile want the crocodile just wants the damn pizza. Right. But the puppy will be like, if I could get petted. That might be better than a treat. Wow. And that's you with the hug and the cookies, literally. Yeah, literally. 
Wow. Yeah. I hope you're okay talking about this. You came over to my house and you helped me secure. I thought of you because I was dallying to log on. I couldn't get my headphones working. And my Mac was asking me for my password. And I thought of you <laughs> as I typed in my five-word, unique, impossible-to-hack password. Mm-hmm. Uh, but when you came over to give me all of these tips, um, one the most useful of which is, is to have unique, unguessable passwords for everything that you have. Um, you told me about a trip that you had. This isn't a live show if you don't want to talk about it. I'm an open book. Okay, good. Um, you told me about a DMT trip that you had mm-hmm. where you experienced time differently. Do you remember mm-hmm. that? I of would course. just love, I'd love to hear the story. Yeah, so I, uh, you know, if anyone who's heard me on the first time I was on You Made It Weird, you know, I'm a former evangelical, and we all share something in common. When we cease to be evangelical, we're like, let me try the things everyone else tried when they were a teenager. Only now I'm in my thirties or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and so I uh, started with mushrooms, which gosh, what a sacred and beautiful experience that was. And then I tried LSD, which was a completely different, but also wonderful experience. And then I said, well, I've read this molecule is the most potent of all the psychedelic experiences. Let's see what happens with DMT. <laughs> And it's it really peels the paint compared to uh, <laughs> compared to, uh, to oh mushrooms which connect you with Mother Earth in her in her bosom, and she teaches you and nurtures you. And LSD, which c- brings the cosmos down into your skull, and you just connect with the universe. Yeah, uh, DMT is like sticking your astral fingers in a like socket. Like it's just like whoa, that's a lot. Yeah, and uh, <laughs> so. I did, uh, I did DMT. <laughs> I always, apparently this happens to a lot of people. I always enter this fractal tunnel at the beginning of a DMT trip. And I move towards this light. That's kind of a flexible multidimensional dome. And, um, if I touch it, it like kind of draws back like a bow and then launches me out and on. Mm. And so that happened to me and I broke through. That's the word they use in the DMT world. And I was launched into some other dimension. (laughs) Um, And it's hard to explain because this will get, is that going to be like a little philosophical? I don't know. Like the audiences. Oh yeah. (laughs) Okay. There's a term in philosophy called qualia, which is basically like all words are metaphors for shared experience. And you can't communicate without qualia. A common example is, there's no word you can use that will make someone experience green who's never seen green. Mm-hmm. The problem with describing this DMT trip <laughs> is there's no qualia. What I, the best I can do is describe you is if you know a lot about um, geometry, especially geometry involving more than three spatial dimensions. My impression is basically that this was a realm with more spatial dimensions than the one we are in now. Many more for that matter. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was <laughs> a being who was not Mike in this universe and lived what a, I recall as being like a full lifetime. That's right. I, that's how we got into this. I said, Gungi's told me you smoke DMT and you lived an entire life and you have more memories from that trip than you do your own life. I have wildly specific 
non-communicable memories. Like oh you basically, it, all the words you would use about life in this space just are nonsense. But what I can remember is then I died in that first universe mm. and basically quantum leap into an existing being who had already been born, um, born, mm. air quotes, and then did that for a while. So you were just awareness popping in and out of, of well, first time it seemed like a full life. The second one I popped in and I had like a uh, control or agency as this being, but I was like, this being was mid experience with something else. And now I'm trying to like act like I belong here. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, and then many years passed and that being died as well. And uh, I began to move towards the great light again at the end of the tunnel and uh i you know i remember telling my wife jenny that i would come back right before i took a hit on the by the way real time it's been like nine minutes um earth time earth time has been like nine minutes and i was like i told jenny i'd be back i remember thinking what the fuck is jenny wow and then just this immense sense of falling and then i opened my eyes and was incredibly confused and disoriented by three spatial dimensions and one temporal dimension and what people were. And then it kind of remembered. And I was like, oh, wow, I'm mm. Mike McCarg and I live on Earth. <laughs> wow. It was really intense. You also told me that the way that time was perceived was different, that you could, I forget how you put it. In but- the second universe. Hmm. There were multiple temporal dimensions, but space was fixed. So to move or <laughs> you, you couldn't change the way things happen spatially, but you could navigate across multiple time dimensions to be with someone in a given spatial moment and then experience what you had together. And then if you wanted a different type of experience, you would move along a different axis of time, but still be in the same moment. And all wow. beings were floating points wow. along temporal awareness on fixed space. So if you and I wanted to have a novel experience that we've never had, we would move up and down on the axis, let's say. Uh, yes. But we were also able to slide forward and backwards to things that had already happened or not would, will happen, but had already happened. So you and I could go, I'd say to you, I'll meet you at the first, you made it weird and would go even though everything would be the same, we could just do it again if we wanted to. Yeah, and to make it different, we could move on the axis of time. And we could go to a place where, to kind of put it in, in our terms here, it's you and me on, you made it weird, but in this multiverse axis, we both have five arms. <laughs> and what was that? what would that be like? You know what I mean? So you could just go to a moment and then kind of dial a different temporal axis to have a different dimensionality to it. Wow. It's very strange. That seems similar. I've always been confused by the idea that whenever you make a decision, two realities are are sparked off. Have you heard that? That's uh, the quantum many worlds hypothesis. That's the notion that uh, quantum mathematics is so complicated. The way to resolve it is to simply assume everything that could happen in a quantum realm does. And because we think that uh, through materialism, our particles are made of quanta, it means you could represent decisions as a collection of quantum events and therefore both branches of a given experience exist in 
the quantum mini worlds multiverse model. Because the decision itself was made out of quanta. Yeah, or at least even if even if quantum effects aren't involved in consciousness, which we don't know, at the very least, the atomic and molecular events that involve consciousness all are made of quanta. And therefore, plus we've also seen you can hold not just atoms, but entire molecules in supersymmetry. So it seems like some of the weirdness of the quantum world is not unique to quanta, by the way. That's a relatively mm. recent finding in physics. Mm. Um, so, you know, many worlds, any multiverse theory is a way physicists are trying to make sense of the fact that some of our biggest models don't link up really well. Um, yeah. That's but a lot of quantum physicists speak of many worlds hypothesis as if it is an accepted theory at this point, although it is not. Wow. Maybe just because it's so radical, man. <laughs> it's radical and it like it just elegantly solves a lot of problems. So w- yeah. what happens is like if you're a quantum physicist, the fucking particle accelerator's really been letting you down for a while now. Like we got the Higgs boson out of it, but the standard model looks invincible right now and all of the other theories that were going to help us out of the dead end of uh, trying to mesh relativity with the standard model they're not showing up in particle accelerators the kind of supersymmetry want we want in order to make sense of you know string theory or m theory for example they're just not showing up in the particle accelerators and particle physicists are saying we got to up the energy but like where are we going to find the money and potentially for some of these models, the amount of energy we'd need a particle accelerator, like almost the size of Neptune's orbit to get enough velocity on a particle to probe these models. So in order to do any meaningful work, the theoricians in physics are just having to pick a pet theory and run with it, mm. hoping those assumptions are true to make some other projection that may ultimately be testable. Right. And that's kind of where we're stuck in particle physics right now. That's interesting. I remember hearing about people inventors invent with technologies that they invent with inventions that don't exist yet so they're like if we could make this what would we make with it and then they make those things so you're saying like if that hypothetical invention that's three inventions down the line could tell us something about the first invention that we need to make to make the third invention and maybe yeah what i'm saying is i got what you said I understand, man. You can't fucking beat me at science. <laughs> yes, you can. Yes, you can. Um, but it, it was clear. That's very, very interesting. Um, I fr- I felt like I was going to say something else, but I, I I forget what it was. We were talking about fucking particles and, and shit. And I'm pizza. still laughing at you. Can't fucking beat me at science. <laughs> You can't be at science, man. <laughs> you know what else I thought on my birthday? Just talking about psychedelics. Yeah, it it didn't it didn't make it didn't make the leap. I said it to Val, and I thought it was so profound, but it didn't make the leap. But maybe it'll make the leap for you, and maybe it'll make the leap for someone listening. Because I was like, you know, we're in this weird time, and we're so worried about the future, and it's very easy to think that anything is the end of the world. And I was like, why is that? And I was just kind of thinking about that. And what my brain said back to me was reality is a one page book. Mm-hmm. So it was more like a white erase board. It's like whatever you put on it, it's another way of saying all that is, is right now. So if you are experiencing the end of the world right now in your consciousness, it basically is because you can't, you don't know what's next. But you also, the, the next page could be, 
bliss and a vaccine and seeing your mm-hmm. friends again. But like, it's really easy to go into that because it's kind of like a misappropriation of the idea that all we have is the present moment. Mm-hmm. So when things seem really, really dark, it's very easy to go to like a, an extreme case. But it's also, you can, you can do that in your advantage the other way as well. But it was just another way of saying live in the moment. It's a one page book. You think you can flip forward and backwards like on your trip, but you can't. It's just this page and you're writing it. So like your priming thing, put some good words down, listen to some good shit. Hopefully this makes me feel like we're putting some good stuff out there. Like let's Mm -hmm. change Mm -hmm. how your reality is listening while we wait for the actual pandemic reality to get better. Epidemiologists are doing their own version of quantum mini worlds right now. There's so many unknowns. They're plunking their best guess into a model to build projections to shape public policy. So assuming that things are going to turn out okay or turn out terribly is a total waste of time right now. (laughs) For the next few weeks, the best way that people can help who are not making public policy are epidemiologists or virologists is to live in the moment and be present and savor the fact that you made it today. You're alive today. You have food and safety today. That's that's Eckhart Tolle's whole thing, too. He's like, all fears are projections of things that could happen. But just to give yourself a break, try to just ask yourself what's wrong right now. Like, literally right now. Um, that's very interesting. What did you just make me think of? It was good. We were talking about virologists, epidemiologists. Um, They're doing their own version of the mini-worlds hypothesis. Yeah, yes, yes. Um, oh, man, I guess it's gone. It doesn't matter. If we switch gears, it'll come back. Probably. That's true. That's true. But we're also running out of time. I mean, this is sort of the end. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. It, it, I'm totally fine with it going away. It, it was something about something I, I thought I learned on LSD. damn it those are my favorite i know those are so good there's such brief moments we get to dramatically amplify the number of dendrites in our brain yes and uh, i love the realizations that happen to people when they're in that state well i took notes here it says reality is a one-page book Uh, i already said that one and i already said the one in the bathtub and then i wrote down how much i took very science mike of me very nice very low amount yeah, I think the low amounts can be the most fun. Yeah, we talked about that. If you take, even for me, what people would consider a full dose is wonderful and fun, but I don't. I come back with nothing. My bags are empty. Maybe that gets better with practice, but I come back and I just go like, boy, it's awesome to be, uh, to be. <laughs> <laughs> with a smaller dose, I really can get, get at more, mm-hmm. more and more interesting things. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, there was one moment in the bathtub that I feel like applies here, was when we do, you and I do all this study, we love Richard Rohr, we love the people that we love, Ram Dass, all this stuff. When I'm there, I go, it's so much truer than you know, it's so much truer than you mm-hmm. know. Like, it's, it's, it's this wonderful thing where you go to the most honest place, your brain is laid out, your heart is laid out, mm-hmm. and you can sort of load in 
any question that you would be afraid to answer. This reminds me of the work they're doing with PTSD and, and Molly, mm-hmm. for example, like people just become so much more open in therapy. So you can put into this orb, basically, some of your beliefs or some of your thoughts or whatever, and you, and you get back this really pure, like, does that really resonate with my heart and my gut and my mind? Mm-hmm. And you get back like, dude, it's so much even better than you could possibly imagine. Mm-hmm. And that's, you just come back to the village, in my case, Val, and you just go like, it's so much more infinite and lovely. I know more infinite is a oxymoron, but or, or a contradiction, but I'm just like, it's so much more than we could ever possibly hope to hold in our brains. So just surf on it. You have that great line in it. We think we're the conductor of our symphony when really we are the symphony. Mm. That's true in your brain and that's true cosmically. And I would say that that's true of God as well. The whole thing is the symphony. God isn't the orchestrator of the symphony, meaning outside of it, making the notes go, he is the symphony or it is the symphony or the symphony is. And that's what Mm -hmm. we're talking about. Mm -hmm. Good stuff, right? I'm a big fan. <laughs> I didn't just mean me. I just mean the whole conversation. This is no, great. that's what I mean. I'm a big yeah, fan yeah, of yeah. the conversation Good. and the time and the space and the Good. energy and the intention to put out into a frightening world right now. Yeah. Things that are good. This is good. I really appreciate you, man. Is there anything else you wanted to say about the book? It's called You Are a Miracle, parentheses, and also a pain in the ass. That's right. It comes out in if we April 28th. Okay, so uh, the end of this month. And is there anything else you wanted to say about it or anything in general? Uh, no, I don't think so. I know well, I'm blowing the blowing the uh, the big moment, but no, I, you're not. That I is, just so enjoyed being here. Not, yeah, you did not blow the moment. We've been doing it for two hours. I'm just like, <laughs> this is just me saying. Did I cut you off? Did I? Did you forget something? Whatever it might have been. No. Um, this was so wonderful. Thank you for doing it. And uh, I'm really enjoying the book. Everybody go out and get it and stay safe. And Mike, stay safe. And Jenny, stay safe. And your daughter, stay mm. safe. Yeah. Um, and would you please end by saying, keep it crispy. Keep it crispy. You keep it crispy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and I'll send you some Charlotte's Web. No joke. C- uh, Charlotte's Web CBD has been okay. such a wonderful ally for me in this time. They make these gummies. I have them here on my desk. I just throw them in. Uh, wonderful way to control the dosing is the gummies. Okay. Uh, so I'll send you some of those. And I'm in. People that are interested at cwhump.com slash weird promo code, keep it crispy 19. But I will send you some, Mike. Okay. Thanks, Pete. All right, pal. Thank you, guys. We'll talk soon. so crispy. so crispy. My ice make you want to